Good evening, I'm Richard Nixon, and here are tonight's news stories brought to you by the pessimism and grumpiness of yours truly. We start here in Sudan, where fighting erupted across the capital last weekend. This comes after months of rising tensions between factions of the armed forces, which have dashed hopes that military leaders would cede power to a democratic government led by civilians. It seems like the people of Sudan can't catch a break. Just four years ago, they saw a jubilant popular uprising that toppled the ruler of three decades, President Omar Hassan al-Bashir. But hopes for democracy and an end to the country's international isolation faltered 18 months ago, when the two most powerful generals united to seize power in a coup. And now those very men are fighting each other, worsening an already dire humanitarian crisis. As a sign of how bad things might still get, the Pentagon has moved troops to Djibouti to prepare for an evacuation of U.S. Embassy staff from Sudan. It's a mess, folks. American troops, Middle Eastern country. Hmm, I have never heard these words together in a sentence. I'm sure they'll do a bang-up job. Speaking of war, let's talk about the one in Europe. The U.S. is sending Ukraine a new weapons package valued at $325 million, brilliant, between the Pentagon and the Ukrainians that will cover the cost of the killing for a few more months, uh, not. Meanwhile, Hungary and Poland banned Ukrainian grain imports after a glut of Ukrainian exports cut into their farmers' profits. And who gets caught in the middle? The people living along the front line in eastern Ukraine who increasingly blame attacks on their towns not on the Russian forces that have bombarded their region for the past eight months, but on the Ukrainian army. Ukrainian soldiers call them waiters because they refuse to be evacuated while they're awaiting a Russian takeover. It's a sad state of affairs. Turning to China, President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva of Brazil met with President Xi Jinping of China on Friday as Lula sought to rebuild his country's ties with Beijing. The two spoke about the war in Ukraine and the need to strengthen ties amid complex geopolitical realignments. They craftily avoided the words invasion or war and offered few specifics. Both have refused to take a side and have preserved business ties with Russia. Brazil has criticized Russia in carefully worded statements, but it also relies on Russia for fertilizer. Lula has suggested that Ukraine's president and NATO share some blame and he has resisted calls to send weapons to Ukraine. Lula called for China's territorial integrity to be respected with regard to Taiwan, a similar stance to that taken by President Emmanuel Macron of France after meeting with Xi in China this month. And let's not forget China's defense minister, Li Shangfu, who met with President Vladimir Putin in Russia this week. Hmm. The French, the Brazilians, the Chinese, uh, all meeting with Putin. It's like they think they can have their own foreign policy. Outrageous! In nuclear news, U.S. officials are obsessively complaining that China is building up its nuclear arsenal. Now the U.S. is facing questions about how to manage a three-way nuclear rivalry, which upends much of the deterrence strategy that has avoided a nuclear war. And let's not forget North Korea, which said it had tested a solid-fuel intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time, which would be a significant step for its missile program. In response, the U.S., South Korea, and Japan conducted joint naval exercises. Big whoop! Moving across Asia, India will soon become the world's most populous country. 
supplanting China for the first time in centuries, according to data from the United Nations. <laughs> and in Europe, Germany closed its final nuclear power plants. The country is an outlier, as other European countries are looking to expand their use of nuclear energy. And now for some lighter news? No, I didn't think so. In cowboy country, a shoe salesman pleaded guilty to stealing the thumb of a 2,000-year-old Chinese terracotta warrior. Can you believe it? Even the statues aren't safe from thievery these days. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided to continue to allow widespread access to a crucial abortion pill through Friday evening, giving the court more time to consider the case. Frankly, I don't care what they decide. It's not like they listen to the people anyways. It's just another way for them to drag their feet and waste time while people suffer. The sane and stable folks at Fox News had to hand over $87.5 million in a defamation settlement to a company that makes voting machines. Well, it's about time they were held accountable for their lies and misinformation. Lastly, SpaceX's Starship rocket successfully took off this week and then exploded three minutes later. Big whoop. And to top it off, this was the largest rocket ever made and launched. Now it's just the world's most expensive metal confetti collection. Well, that's all from me, folks. Please like, share, and hit the notifications bell. You are watching the Ministry of Propaganda. Thank you, Richard Nixon. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ministry of Propaganda. And me and Chris tonight are going to be talking about Sudan, uh, a situation update on what's happening in Sudan. We had a special request from one of our viewers to talk about Sudan. And of course, it is a big issue. It's been in the news uh, all week. And uh, it looks like it's not, uh, not de-escalating yet. Uh, it started last weekend and it looks like things are not going to go well. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. Um, so, Chris, where do you want to begin with this one? Yeah, so um, this one seems to be a story that essentially came out of nowhere. If you were following the situation in Sudan, uh, we all expected it to go in the complete opposite way. In fact, it was only last week where our very own Nixon, Richard Nixon actually said this in one of our clips. Some news from Africa. The two generals ruling Sudan after a coup 18 months ago are supposed to hand over power to a civilian government this week. Let's hope they actually do it and don't find some way to cling to power. Indeed. Well, that's aged like fine milk. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts. The situation itself is still very much in motion. And there's a lot of factions going on. So we thought it'd be good to sort of get together and try and explain where this has come from, who's supporting who, and is this really as partisan as the West sort of automatically portraying it as? Um, it doesn't mm. seem to be as clear-cut as some other conflicts going on. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I, I agree that it's actually more complicated than I thought. Um, and it is also... Uh, yeah, you, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of parachuting in to <laughs> uh, quite a complicated matter. Um, it is difficult to pick where to begin, I think. Um, I'll just list some of the elements that I think I picked up, at least reading the New York Times, reading Financial Times, reading the Global Times, as well as some other sort of links and documentaries from Al Jazeera. Um, you have an element that relates to Egypt and Ethiopia and the, the Nile. So there's a water element to this. Um, a dispute between Egypt and Ethiopia about the Nile, about a dam. 
um, which is the water side of this. And of course, then you have the oil side of this. Um, you know, Sudan does have some oil, not as good as, you know, Venezuela or something like that, but a decent um, amount of oil. Um, you have this sort of ethnic element, which ties back to the Darfur genocide. Um, you have, you know, then an Arab versus um, African tribe sort of element, a race element to this. Um, and then the North and South uh, divide, which which is, you know, a little bit less of a factor because South Sudan is split. But um, those are kind of some of the moving parts. And then you have pan-Arabism and, and militias and now also Wagner and Russia as well are being you know, alleged to be involved too. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite difficult to pick a point when, when all of those things have at least some uh, element within it. So yeah, Chris, I don't know. If you want to talk about the history briefly, just not necessarily give a whole history of Sudan, but mention some of that. What do you think? Yeah, so um, just to sort of jump in. So obviously you mentioned uh, Darfur. Um, obviously yeah. this, the situation in Sudan, um, as far back as is sort of worth mentioning for the sake of this podcast, it was started, for instance, at 1955, which would be the beginning of the first Sudan Civil War. Um, that ended with an agreement called the Addis Abyss Agreement, which created basically autonomy for the South. Obviously, we all now now know that the newest country in in the recognised country in the world is South Sudan, which I believe got independence 2011, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they've been fighting for quite some time for the to break away, as you mentioned, due to a lot of it racial tensions, tribalism. Um, so. This agreement gave them autonomy. Uh, the next president came in and declared the whole country an Islamic state and got rid of that autonomy. So that kickstarted the second civil war. Uh, so that president eventually left. Another president came in who then started to negotiate with the rebels in the south. The army didn't like that. So in 1989, Omar al-Bashir takes over in a military coup. He ends up being long-time president until 2019, when widespread national protests. This is coming at the tether end of the Arab Springs. If you think the Arab Springs were more the beginning of that decade in Egypt, Libya. Um, so mm. some commentators have suggested this is classed as part of the Arab Spring, uh, but it, it more seems like its own thing. Um, but So it's 2019, coup time again, the army take over set up a transitional military council. And this isn't what the people wanted. They wanted a civilian government. And so there was protesters in the streets saying, we've got rid of one thief and replaced him with another. The army then attacked the protesters, killing scores of people, about 150 people dead, up to nearly a thousand wounded and mass reported rapes committed by the army. This was is now known as the massacre of Khartoum. Eventually, the army secede and say, OK, well, we're going to set up a mixed government to allow the gradual passing over to a civilian government. And they brought in a, a group called Forces of Freedom, which is a coalition of political parties and trade unions. So, OK, we're going to work with you to move towards a civilian government. 2001 comes around, coup time again. The army kick out the prime minister and that seems to die. Uh, but they start to promise, say, well, we are going to transition to a civilian government, which was meant to be last week. Hmm. Um, this seems to be loosely triggered by the army and the rapid support forces 
had a timetable for when they were going to integrate them into the army. Uh, the army said two years, the RSF said 10 years, and this is where we are now. On the 15th of April, they both started attacking each other. Both sides said that they were attacked first. It's very unclear who it is. Mm. Um, so that's basically the, the simplified bullet point version of where mm. we are now. Obviously, there's a lot of groups there that have mentioned that we're going to need to go into and explain who they are. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think a good summary, uh, just to give someone, you know, a sort of a three or four minute sort of understanding of the general nature of the coups and uh, Bashir, the 30 year old, the 30 year long leader before that. Um, just a quick note on, on Bashir's thing there was he also took power. So 30 years ago when he took power, it was also at the uh, end of a, of a democratic process that was busy, busy being forged. Yes. So they had kicked out another um, sort of military leader. There was a, a mass, uh, what's it called a um, general strike. And, you know, then he jumped in, uh, they, they, they then pushed out the old, coup, the old leader. They started the democratic process. They had a prime minister. Then Bashir came in um, at the end of a democratic process. So this is very much like uh, similar in respects to yeah. how Bashir came in. Um, yeah. At least on a, on a sort of surface level. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, just as a quick one, though, um, before we get into yeah the, the the specifics of today, just on that sort of north south split. So Sudan had been a part or ruled as a part of Egypt and then a part of the Ottoman Empire basically um, for you know many centuries. Uh, and then as the Ottoman Empire collapsed, Egypt ruled Sudan and then the British ruled Sudan via Egypt, which was essentially them running it, Egypt that is. Um, and they came up with this. Um, this thing of, of the eighth and 10th parallel split. So in the south of the country, they used to run the to the south of the country, which has now become South Sudan. Um, they're in that south, different to the north. So they created, the British um, artificially put said eighth and 10th parallel, which is effectively the border of North and South Sudan now, or Sudan and South Sudan now, um, and said, you know, um, Christians, African Christians, uh, darker skinned African Christians will stay in the Southern area and Muslim sort of more Arab, um, ethnicity will stay in the north, uh, and they promoted the spread of Christianity in the south, which is which is where you have the the, the real origin of, of that north south divide uh, was British policy. So then, in, in independence, they continued with that north south separate ruling system. But yeah, um, just to give a little bit more context on that too. So there's a religious element and a race element to the the, the divide, the historical divide. But um, yeah, um, on then this sort of uh, you know these militias. So just to give some names out. You've got, of course, on one hand, you've got the head of the army, the head of the military. Um, he is called General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. So he is on one side, the uh, head of the actual army, and the other side, RSF, as Chris said, uh, Lieutenant General Mohammed Hamdan, who is also called Hemeti. So Hemeti. he goes by sort of two different names, uh, Lieutenant General Mohammed Hamdan or General Mohammed, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, and then their nickname is Hemeti. So if yeah. you see those three things being thrown around, that's the same person. I think for the purpose of us, I think we should stick to Hemeti just for... Let's stick with Hemeti. Yeah, yeah, let's go for Hemeti. That's fine. Yeah, Hemeti and Al-Burhan. Let's just go for one side and the other. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it, this is this this sparked because of Hemeti having to hand over, basically give up his RSF militia and be, you know, absorbed into one um, national army, national military, and then yeah. also begin the, the uh, democratic process. Um 
I mean, yeah, a bit of a Hobbesian contract, right? So the, the monopoly of violence, um, you know, this was this was essentially the the, the government or the, the country uh, moving in the direction of not sharing, uh, not having two armies, which, yeah, traditionally <laughs> countries, yes. modern states don't have uh, two separate armies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, military, it does seem to be one of those obvious sort of early warning signs that this is one of the things that I've had in the back of my mind worried about the situation in Russia at the moment with the mm. power of Wagner. That at a certain yeah. point, where you, you you're given more power to a paramilitary group to do a job, it's very difficult mm. then to rein it in, which is exactly mm. what has happened here. Because um, obviously mm. the R, the RSF were mm. created. For a specific job and then that job ended they partnered up with the army to overthrow the president and now you've got an army when you actually look at the numbers of these two groups in terms mm. of numbers they're pretty much equal it's in weaponry that they they differ yeah on. yeah on the specific is I, I only number that i've heard specifically is for for Hemeti's forces is about hundred thousand but yeah, they have the, no the army is about hundred nine thousand. so okay Okay, so they are actually very balanced, very closely uh, balanced. Okay, yeah. but, but of course, um, Hemeti, there's no air force. Only, yes, they have um, anti-air. Okay. 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 <laughs> so they can shoot right. planes down, they just don't have it in themselves. That's it, that's it. Well, I mean, yeah, just on, on the specifics of how the fighting is going. Because obviously, I mean, I don't think, um, I mean, I haven't seen or I looked at sort of where most of the fighting is in the lines and sort of are they in a particular part of the city. I, I just know that there's lots of fighting around Khartoum and it's now spreading to other parts of the country. But there was a picture of the headquarters of the military and it's completely burned out. So, you know, that tells me that Hemeti's forces are were able to get, you know, very close to the headquarters of the military and, and effectively destroy it, which shows you that it's a, you know, not a very clear north-south or east-west split, um, at least in that sense. There's a lot of fighting in the capital over, you know, key assets, key... Um, you know, the airport and the headquarters. Yeah, so I'm just going to have, have a look while we're talking to see if I can get the territory map up because just while okay. I do that, just go into a bit of history about them. So um, the rapid response forces, they actually grew out of militias called the Janjaweed, who were militias that the government under Abishir um, mm -hmm. used to put down anti-government resistance in Darfur. Um, of course, that was a long time war that ended in uh, 2020. Um, but before that, these groups were actually part of, brought together by the Arab gathering that was sponsored by Umar Gaddafi and was part of his project to basically unify the, the Arabs into a single state along the Sa'el. S-A-E-L. I can't say that word. It's a bit, Aye. Um, Aye. but it's basically a band that runs through Africa, from the Horn to West Africa, um, that is primarily Arab. Oh, do you mean the Sahel? Sahel. Sahel. <laughs> Sahel. Right, got you. Got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got you. Got you. Um, so that is where this um, pan-Arab ideology comes, and this obviously is still something that resonates with a lot of the. Militiamen, whether this is a stated ideology of the RSF, who, as a paramilitary, you'd expect not to have an ideology because mm. if you wear that on your sleeve, it's sort of like a badge of intent, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> if you've got mm. an ideology right. as paramilitary, you, you keep it to yourself until you've until you're ready to declare it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, but when you actually look at the map of the territory that they currently hold, a lot of the area 
is still in Darfur. Mm -hmm. So this is the RSF, just, right? Yeah. So it does show that they they are sort of solidifying into their in, into their regional homes. Um, mm -hmm. So I can see this is where the fighting that seems to be where the, the battle line is going to be now. I can see for this foreseeable future. Yeah. 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 I mean, just a quick one on the Janjaweed. So yeah, there's a, a bit of a yeah. I mean, uh, their history is quite. At least some from some perspective. I mean, I haven't had the chance to hear the the Jalanjuweed's perspective of the, on on the conflict, but you know, uh, accused of a lot of pretty horrendous stuff. Um, there, the yep. word Jalanjuweed, I really think, means devils on camels or something like devils on camelback or something like this. Um, but uh, I've heard lots of people describe them as basically Cossacks on camels. The sort of nomadic forces that were being used to, as you said, um, crush resistance to the government in Darfur and whatnot during the, the genocide. Um, yeah, this is some really strange images where you see them on camel back um, rolling through, you know, Darfur and they have sort of hind helicopters to attack helicopters too. So yeah, a strange, strange group. And also the ideology, ideology as well, um, ac accused of, you know, ethnic cleansing, killing um, the sedentary tribes. So you have the roaming tribes of moving more Arab uh, tribes and they were, you know, uh, killing and trying to push out the sedentary sort of farmer um, African tribes. Um, and this also then ties slightly into the oil question because the territory they were busy being pushed out of was where lots of this oil was discovered and lots of the concessions were given, um, which we'll go into a bit if you want. But um, yeah, just some of the comments I've or some of the things I saw about these, the Jaljaweed, which has become the RSF. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, with a lot of these sort of conflicts, especially in, in the in the in these sort of regions, mm. it's very hard to look at any side the way they're fighting because everybody ends up getting committed, accused of committed war crimes. Because realistically, they happen, and unfortunately, it's it's when it starts turning into uh, military gang rape, gang rape, and things like this, and it's really down in the yeah. in the dirt sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, it seems that. I'll, all sides seem to commit it and that's what makes it so sort of difficult to mm. be partisan which is almost amazing that certain journalist groups like the new york times as we've we've seen earlier on have jumped mm. on it and said oh this is the bad side because wagner or russia and this yes. is the good side because yeah. no wagner it's like well they yes. still did all this stuff like he's gonna ignore the 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 civilian massacres just because wagner aren't arming them right 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 like yeah line draw yeah yeah so uh, that's actually something that um yeah the, the new york times did jump on the sort of wagner link uh, straight away so just to give context um you know uh Hemeti, as well as al burhan uh, both went to russia and met with uh putin as well as prigozhin um and you know prigozhin there are there is a, a russian presence in um, in Sudan, as there is in many North African countries, uh, particularly to fight Islamic fundamentalists. Um, they train, you know, train militias and train troops in fighting fundamentalists and are usually welcomed um, in a number of countries, Burkina Faso and Mali, where they've kicked out the French. Um, but yeah, the, the New York Times jumped straight on this and say, oh, look, this Hameti militia uh, is trained and supported and is, in, is uh, you know, Wagner's doing this. And there's a port that the Russians were going to get a naval port. And there you go. There's your, there's your smoking guns. The Russians, it's the bad Russians doing the bad stuff again. Um, 
they also, so the, the New York Times article, I'll bring it up in a moment, didn't mention um, anything to do with sort of other regional politics, which I think I'll bring up here now. And at the same time, the guys at the Duran, the, the two Alexes at the Duran, gave a sort of 15 minute short sort of their opinion on the situation in Sudan. They mentioned also Wagner, but they also didn't mention um, the, the canal and sort of Egyptian politics that might be playing a role here, which I did see a bunch of guys from um, being interviewed by Al Jazeera, um, Sudanese experts, talking about the role that Egypt's playing playing this. So I'll bring this up in a moment, Chris. I don't know if you read anything about Egypt's role or potential role in this, or allegations at least. I've not seen much about Egypt. It's, I've been looking into uh, Libya's sort of connection to it. Okay. Um, that in itself is quite interesting because, yeah. as you mentioned, with some of these groups who are fighting and mm -hmm. fighting each other and the historical link, you've got groups mm -hmm. that historically were armed by the Libyan Jemadiyya, mm -hmm. but who are now allied with the Libyan National Army, mm -hmm. who is led by somebody who was fighting against the Jemadiyya eventually after 1987, uh, I think. Um, they split. Um, so there seems to be a lot of opportunism. Um, but this is it's the sort of thing that we've pointed out before. We've sort of trying to fit everybody into ideologies and saying, well, this group should be allied with that group because they believe that. It doesn't always work like that on the ground level. So much of it is based on practicality. Mm -hmm. And this is completely... We're, where sort of Wagner fit in that yeah. Wagner don't really have any base belief. I've seen people in the, in the West say, oh, it's a fascist organization. It's like, they literally don't believe anything. Half mm -hmm. of them are prison conflict convicts. They believe in getting paid. Mm -hmm. They're not rallying around a leader or rallying around anything uh, other yeah. than pay and a, a, a vague veneer of national nationalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you make a good point there about it just not being so uh, simple and clear cut in motives and realities on the ground. And also, I think that a lot of this conversation, we tend to sort of jump straight to a Cold War perspective and go, yeah. OK, is it, is, it, is it the left? Is it the blues or the reds? Who are they yes. for? Who are they fighting? And actually, yeah, this is and, and, and I think that's actually not it's definitely not so simple. And also, even on an anti-imperialist perspective, some anti-imperialists will automatically try and figure out, OK, where's the US's money and, and where the, where's their role? And then almost completely brush aside any regionality or national yeah. politics um, or class politics even. Um, they just go straight to the sort of anti-imperialist perspective, which, I mean, I understand that. I get it. And, I, you know, I definitely take that role a lot myself. But I think if you look at particularly sort of Egypt's particular um, situations, so I'll bring this article from um, the uh, Financial Times up here. So, like I said, um, they talk about the Egyptian element, which the New York Times completely ignored and also the guys at the Duran kind of brushed over. But anyway, they're usually quite good, those guys. Yeah, around. they are anyway, good. Yes, yeah. So I'll just put, read this out to you. So Egypt is a long-term backer of Abdel Fattah al-Buran, head of Sudan's armed forces and de facto leader against Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, commander of the RSF. According to Khalid Khan, director of the Confluence Advisory Think Tank in Khartoum, um, he says, Egypt is unequivocal. They're Team Burhan over Team Hameti, she said, using Dagalo's widely used nickname, adding that Cairo considered him a rogue actor. Uh, then, of course, it talks about the fighting here, which I'm going to just jump ahead. Uh, and then we'll just read this part here, over here. So, um, so who's this? This is the Financial Times. This is the Financial it's Times. It's a line. Egypt is a long time back. General Sisi has been, only been there since 2014. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it's years now. It's nine years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'll just read those here. Michael Wahid Hanna of Think Tank Crisis Group also said Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's military-led regime had thrown its political weight behind Buran, who was trained in Egypt. There is deep mistrust of Mehmeti's intentions, he added, largely because he is a militia leader outside conventional military structures, but also because of his alleged commercial ties with Russia, whom he has courted with the prospect of military access to Port Sudan. They don't want to see an outside military presence in what they see as their backyard, Wahid Hanna said. Egypt was also, also wanted what Alan Boswell of Crisis Group called a mini-me version in Khartoum of its own military-based regime, as well as an ally in its dispute with Ethiopia over the construction of a massive dam that Cairo fears could interrupt the flow of the Nile, Egypt's lifeline. Okay, so that was the, the point that I think uh, wins, at least in my mind, the Financial Times, the points for giving a, a better perspective um, on this than some other outlets, was, was, was bringing in that regional element. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't read this stuff anywhere else about um, Egypt and, and the fact that you know, Burhan was trained there and yeah. um, Egypt's gotten pulled through, through the weight behind them. Um, so just to talk about this canal, I'll get a picture up um, in a moment, actually, Chris, if you want to make a comment on, on that. Yeah, so obviously this is something that, when we talk, when we talk about uh, regional conflicts and fighting over resources, oil, minerals, these are the things that normally pop up. But with this particular conflict of the of this cluster of three countries, water is key. It, the mm. Nile is, in terms of value, can top, trump any of that. Um, just mm -hmm. while you're pulling that up, I just wanted to bring up a uh, quick something about um, Hameti, the leader of the um, RSF. He's actually mm -hmm. one of the richest men in the Sudan. Um, his company owns the majority of diamond mines and oil refineries in the Saddam. Um, so obviously this is where is a lot of his personal wealth is coming from and dare say where a lot of the organization's funding is coming from. Mm. Um, so right. when we're talking right. about why Wagner would be interested in this group, Donald Trump's all, this is why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, 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 I shouldn't know that about Ahmeti uh, being the, the wealthy, one of the wealthiest men in the country. But that makes sense. I know that he's been giving out, uh, according to the New York Times, he's been giving out um, mining concessions and mining sort of stuff to uh, gold gold mining to, uh, yeah. to to Wagner and to Russian companies. Um, but yeah, so let me bring up this map just so we can bring this conversation back to the um, the water element. So we'll do the water element first and then we'll come back to oil. Um, yeah. So take a look here. So this is the... Uh, one second. So this map here is the uh, Nile. So it shows the Nile. So I'm going to go back. So obviously it starts, there's lots of, probably thousands of rivers that make up the Nile, you know, uh, but the big ones are the White Nile and the Blue Nile. So coming from Uganda into South Sudan, you have the White Nile, which is the smaller river. The main river or biggest contributor to the overall Nile is the Blue Nile, which starts in Ethiopia. I've forgotten the name of the lake. It starts in this lake here. This is a highland. So all the water gathers here in the rain. And basically, um, the Ethiopians have built what's called the Grand Renaissance, sorry, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, G-E-R-D, so GERD for short. And it's a massive dam. It's one of the biggest dams in the world. And it's a hydroelectric dam. It's supposed to make electricity. So they have planned this for years. They've been talking about it since the 60s. And Egypt, even during NASA's time or back then, said that this would be a... Uh, an attack, an existential threat to them. So I think I forgot which Egyptian leader who said this, but he said basically, um, if you build that dam, uh, we will 
we will go and die and fight at that dam rather than just die here and, and, and of thirst. So it was quite, um, you know, quite clear to, you know, to the Ethiopians how this would plan, pan out for the Egyptians. And there's the expression, um, Egypt is the Nile, Nile is Egypt. And the reason for that is if you look at this map, that's population density in Egypt. So Egypt is the most populous Arab country, if I'm not mistaken, um, 100 million, 101 million people, yeah, 101 million people there. And if you can guess, this map doesn't actually have the Nile on it, but you can see where the Nile is because it's the clear, thick band of population going from the middle of the country to the top. So Egypt, apart from that, is completely almost empty, uh, apart from the Nile. So this emphasizes how important that dam is. So basically the problem is that <laughs> they did approve the dam and they've built the dam and they actually managed to get the approval and start building it in 2011. The reason why they picked 2011 is because that's when um, Egypt was going through the revolution. So they cheekily, <laughs> well, you're busy. <laughs> yeah, they cheekily passed the resolution and got started the construction um, while Egypt was in chaos, basically. Um, very cheeky on the Ethiopians part, but you know. As a little, uh, as a little side hmm. point, as a little quirk of history, it's actually quite hmm. surprising that since that dam was proposed and talked about since the 50s, hmm. it's, it's strange that the Soviets didn't build it for Ethiopia when they had a communist government, because if you look at the majority of communist countries, like say North Korea, the Soviets built their hydroelectric dam. Mm -hmm. they, the North Koreans loved it so much they put it on their national em emblem. Yeah, yeah. You would have that. Yeah, that would have I imagine though that because Egypt was also a good friend of of the, the yeah. Soviet Union, I think they wanted to keep them happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think I think they probably helped them build their one because bear in mind the Egyptians have their own dam here. But um, yeah, yeah. Just in case it's not obvious, the problem is of course that if you build a dam across a river. And let's say there's a drought down river, you have to rely then on your friend uh, releasing, the Ethiopians releasing the water or, or you know, uh, something like this. So basically, it puts an immense amount of power in the hands of the Ethiopians over the Egyptians and the Sudanese to a lesser extent, too. Well, actually, to the same extent. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so that's why this is a big factor. That's why it's a big, important thing. So Egypt wanting a friendly government in Sudan, who's also a military government, uh, in the analysis of the Financial Times, you can see the logic there that, you know, having the ability to put troops and stuff in Sudan right next to the dam because it's it's on the border. Um, that's a big factor. That's a, it's an important, important strategic re regional strategic um, fact. So, yeah, that's the the, the, the the water and the dam kind of stuff that I think plays into this. Um, yeah. yeah. And I would argue too, that yeah. is, like I said, one of the main sort of factors into, mm. like I say, oil, oil is comparably cheap compared to water in, the, in this equation yeah 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 well actually i mean i don't know if you want to go straight into the oil conversation because it, it's that's um yeah also quite interesting in terms of but that, that one is not as um uh you know sort of two people against each other it's, it's a bit more complicated that one i think i don't know if you want to comment on on the water first or do you want to move into oil what, what do you yeah, move on to oil if, if you if you want to have a look at it yeah okay um so I don't know if you've got something particular, but I've got some good maps of oil fields and the pipeline. Um, so I'll show you this one first, I guess. Uh, so the first one shows you, it's just a little bit better to understand. So even though it's outdated, it's better to just give you the general understanding in the beginning. Um, so it's in German, apologies. Um, so, uh, but this shows you basically where the oil fields are. Okay, they're in the south. And this was made before partition. Okay, so this yeah. is old, big Sudan. 
And you can see, I don't know if the British intentionally, um, you know, that eighth and 10th parallel where they pushed Christian uh, African tribes in the South and, and kept the, the Arab Muslims in the North, um, whether they knew about this oil field. I need to check on that. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe someone in the comments can check that while they watch. But, um, but yes, in 2004, when this German map was made, you can see the big my uh, oil fields, the concessions. And it gives you then a breakdown of who owns what. Um, I'll show you the modern map, which is from the, uh, I believe, the Ministry of, uh, I forgot what it's called, but it's the actual Sudanese government, which is in charge of uh, oil. Uh, I can show you their map in a moment because this might be outdated. But yeah, that's where it was. And you can see, then, of course, lots of those concessions go into South Sudan and what is now South Sudan, and then others are still within normal Sudan. Um, and there's your pipeline. Okay, there's the main pipeline, which goes up past Khartoum and then to Port Sudan. Okay. But to show you the other one here, so this is what it looks like today without South Sudan. Okay, so it cuts half of, you know, those um, concessions are half of them across the border in South Sudan. Um, and you can see there's a lot more pipeline. So it's a little bit confusing this. So just basically any of the colors, green, gray, um, and purple are pipelines. The only one that's not a pipeline is that blue thing, which of course is the Nile. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so... As you can see over here, you've got the names of some of the concessions. So, for example, you've got um, CNPC. So I'm going to go back to the old map here. CNPC, which is the Chinese, one second, Chinese National Petroleum Corporation. So the Chinese do have some of the concessions. And then you have some state-owned ones. So Sudanese state-owned, Greater Nile Petroleum Operating Company. Uh, then you have a Canadian one, Talisman Energy. You then have Malaysian ones, so that's Petronas, which is the Malaysian state-owned state-owned oil company. Sudapet, a Sudanese state-owned company. Then the Chinese one, which is also a state-owned uh, oil company. Um, Qatar, Sudan again, and then Malaysia, Sweden, uh, Austria. And then you have a big, big one here, the, the number five, Central. That's by Total French. That's the French Total uh, oil company. So you can see a different spread there. So a big one by Total, they've got a decent chunk there, but also um, a sizable one by China. So CPNC, which is in what is now normal Sudan. And that's yeah. still there today. So that's number six there. That's concession number six, block number six, as they call these things. So yeah, that's um, a kind of overview of the oil. You can see that there's a lot of different actors involved, European, Asian, um, state-owned companies, and then the Sudanese too. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, not a lot of American companies. Actually, I don't think there's any. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like this might be part of the reasoning why it's in the Western journalists' interest to try and make this look as partisan as possible. Um, mm. It sort of blurs the lines a lot. Obviously, we've got at the moment the internal ethnic groups fighting in the country. Uh, we are going to explain. We've made a few references to Wagner. We haven't actually explained why we're making these references yet, but we will do shortly. And obviously, the allegation is that Wagner are rearming. So as, as far as we know at the moment, there's no foreign fighters. There's no foreign mm -hmm. mercenaries. But there is, just from the oil map, there is reason for foreign groups to get involved down the line. And um, you could easily see... Um, a time very soon when people will be wanting to come in to protect their oil fields. Mm -hmm. um, China aren't really 
in that position to do that. That's not really in their MO to do that. They'd be much more inclined to pay the whatever group controls that area for added protection of their site rather than put in Chinese troops into for it. That's not something China would... For me, I can't see China even want to do that. It doesn't give good optics at all to, to doing that. Even if there's a good reason for doing it, having Chinese boots in Africa doesn't look good. So I could much rather see them either paying the Sudanese army or the RSF, say, can you just look after our sites a little bit better while you're fighting around them, please? Here's a little bit of extra money so you don't yeah. hit us with a rocket. Yeah. No, I, I don't think this... I, I also would be extremely surprised if the Chinese sent any troop. Um, so obviously the, 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 the ghost in the distance here is intervention. Will there be an intervention if this gets worse? Um, and... You know, there's one way of looking at it, like we want to prevent Rwanda. That's always the intervention sort of logic. Uh, but then the other side is, well, Iraq. Um, so, yeah. So, and Syria. Yeah. These, well, this is always the conversation. And with intervention. The other side of that, Maymar at the moment, which when you look mm -hmm. at the rebels in Maymar, are literally begging for intervention. I yeah. aren't getting any. So you think, mm -hmm. even in sort of Western imperialist mindset, there mm -hmm. is a calculation there whether it's, Worth it. Profitable yeah. for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you yeah, know definitely. there's going to be blowback, like yeah. ISIS-level blowback from doing something like that. But you think, it, are we going to get enough money before that happens? Yes. And if the answer is yes, they'll do it. With this, I don't know. Because it's already all claimed. Like, if the West would go in, whether it be Britain, France, or America, it's like, what's the profit then for doing it? Because they can't, they can't be stealing China's oil. China aren't going to let them do that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and Malaysia and, and lots yeah. of other, you know, very. If it was just some class, independent yeah. African socialist country that's got a nationalized oil company, then you, all you're doing is stealing off this the the True. state that you're invading. But True. if it's already divvied up to foreign governments anyway, then it's harder to steal it without anyone yeah. getting upset. True. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I didn't look at a uh, deep dive on the gold side of things and whether that's worthy enough of, of uh, intervention and whether they have state-owned you know mines and whatnot i know that the russians have been given some concessions but yeah that might maybe there might be the the, the worthy part of an intervention but I, I again i don't think so i think that i think that uh just coming back to the sort of egyptian element to it one of the it was a nice soundbite of trump saying we've got to blow up that dam we've got to blow in a sense we know that egypt is largely like you know they, they do support the the U.S. or yeah, the U.S. supports them, um, so I think they already have their horse in this race in a sense that Gourani is backed by yeah. Egypt, and Egypt has uh, got you know very decent, very strong relations with the U.S. Um, they also, as we discussed last week, they do you know they did send rockets to to Russia for the war, yeah. but um, yeah, I, I don't think that the U.S. wants to get involved in this right now. I mean, also they've just you know 2020 was it last year, end of last year, uh, out of Afghanistan. There's no appetite for a Middle Eastern or um, that part of the world, if you use a, that kind of perspective, um, you know, sending American troops to another desert to fight. No, that's, I don't think that's going to happen. And that's it. We're, we're, where we are now in 2023, we're in a very different place to where we were in 2003. Uh, mm. The way imperialist influence has changed is it's dramatically dropped. 
there's no, the West don't have the same loyal allies and puppets that they used to do. Take General Sisi, for instance, who, for all intents and purposes, was set up with the intention of being a Western puppet. He was meant to be a puppet. Tony yeah. Blair called him the savior of democracy. And when Tony Blair saying that about you, you're a bad, bad man. <laughs> <laughs> so, but right. With, right. Like, like these third-rate dictators, they, they smell weakness. And when they smell weakness in their sponsor, being Britain or America, that's when they start to get their own ideas of independence. So just because America backed CC to set up, to overthrow an elected government that they didn't like, just because it was the wrong elected government, that doesn't mean they, they stay loyal for very long. So when you want to then use them to sponsor a war with their neighbor, you just can't trust them to do that anymore, like Saudi Arabia. If we were to having a conversation about Saudi Arabia 10, 15 years ago, you would have never imagined a time when they break ranks with America. Right. And now they have done completely. And to the point where the relationship, as some Western journalists, oh, is Biden going to help thaw relationships between Saudi Arabia? The fact that they needed thawing just shows yeah. that we're in a different stage. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's also why the conflict is not so simple. Um, and you also then also there's there's other things you just mentioned there too. Even Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Qatar also have uh, a stake in this. They see Sudan as a part of of of, of their sort of backyard of, of the Arab world. And yes, they also have sort of you know this this thing about they don't want um, a sort of another Islamist group that they don't necessarily agree with. Um, taking power or chaos basically in that area would not be good for them either. Um, they also have yeah, investments um, there too. And actually Sudan, Sudan under uh, under Bashar, uh, not Bashar, sorry, forgotten the name, Omar, Omar Bashar, um, yeah. he, uh, they sent troops to fight in Yemen on the side of, of Saudi Arabia against the Iranians and the Houthis. So um, they are also you know, concerned about not losing um, that kind of ally. So I think that's that's another factor too. Um, they, they, I don't know if they can guarantee that Hameti will, you know, be the same as um, uh, Abu Ran uh, to to continue their support if they need it. Even though we are seeing that detente in you know between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think we've already gone over the oil conversation, but I, I yeah. just wanted to show one more quick thing, which just shows that because uh, I did watch a um, documentary about the Darfur. You know, genocide, which came up before this. One of the criticisms uh, actually leveled at China was that they um, that they uh, didn't. Oh, one second, hold on. Here we go. That they didn't um, vote to allow uh, UN peacekeepers to go in or intervention, uh, sort of yeah, humanitarian intervention forces to go into Sudan to observe what was going on and try and you know keep the peace. And um, they eventually did. They didn't vote against it, they abstained, but eventually the agreement was that it would they would only send in the troops if they had the consent of Sudan and if they were African Union troops, and they did send them in. And um, yeah, but the criticism was that, of course, that, uh, you know, the reason was that China was importing all of their oil from um, from Sudan. Uh, and I just got a map here to try to find it. Sorry, the oil. Go. Sorry, I've got so many bloody documents. One second. Let me just grab this up. Uh, is that basically you can see that the Chinese basically stopped investing uh, or stop sorry stop stop receiving so much of their oil from Sudan. Um, part of it is because of the fact that the South Sudanese oil fields actually were 
you know, producing a lot of oil too. So yeah. they just got the oil from the south rather than the north. Um, but the other part is you, you can clearly see that the Sudanese oil field was not as big of a thing for them. They didn't have as many, um, as much oil coming out. Um, I actually can't find this bloody map now. I've got so much crap of it. So yeah, I, I'll just leave that comment as they actually, I won't have to show you the map. It's just an observation is that. Yeah, I, th I think it was, it's a bit of a um, cause and effect. Like those statements both can be true without them being sort of linked. China's mm. one of its main sort of principles when dealing with other countries is respecting sovereignty and respecting political independence. So mm -hmm. for them to say to not to vote against UN intervention in a country, that for me is completely in the MO of, of China to vote against that. I'd expect mm -hmm. nothing less from them. Um, mm -hmm. But just because that is true doesn't mean the opposite is true. It just doesn't mean, for me, it doesn't mean that that's influenced that decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think that's this is the consistency. The Chinese position is always non-intervention in other people's country and other yeah. other kind of affairs, and they've been pretty consistent on that. So here we go. This is what I wanted. Um, so this is Sudan's um, exports of oil. Okay. Um, sorry, not wrong. Wrong. Sorry, import emissions. So this is the Chinese import of oil from different countries. So over here right. on the right hand side, import origins Chinese oil. Okay. So you can see that in two thousand and four, it was. 5% of their oil, right? So $1.46 billion, right? And if you see as the Darfur conflict sort of uh, escalated, so if you go like 2008, you can see up to 7.7%. So this is, you know, when the Darfur thing was, was quite intense, there was lots of fighting and whatnot. Yeah. And you can see $9.17 billion were, was, was coming from uh, Sudan for, for the Chinese oil companies. But if you skip ahead and you look sort of then, uh, let's go 2010, You'll see that it starts dropping 6.6. If you then go to 2011, the last year that Sudan is still Sudan and there's no South Sudan, um, you see it's already dropping down to three. And then within sort of uh, you know 2012, it's off. It's completely gone, right? It's 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 leveled off. It's somewhere down here. So even South Sudan, only half a million, and uh, you can't even find Sudan. It's Egypt. Yeah, it's not even on there. It's just rolled into a general African export statistics. So yeah, you can see that they actually, oh, there it is, sorry, 1.5 billion. Um, but if you cut to today, 2021, you'll see that South Sudan, 300 million. Uh, where's Sudan? I don't think I can see Sudan. Yeah, so it's not even on there. Um, Gabon, Congo, Ghana, Nigeria, Guinea. No, so it's not even on here. It's just in other Africa, $40 million. So the amount of oil that China gets from Sudan now is very little. Um, most of the export is from South Sudan. Yeah. Um, so I, I think even the Chinese might not have that much of a stake in, in this situation. But as I already said, they um, they say they have a policy of non-intervention. Leave yeah. internal, internal affairs must be resolved, resolved internally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always find that is it it's sort of low-hanging fruit for uh, anti-communists and critics of, of China to then use it as a rod to beat China with. Uh, a big one, sort of, so not without getting sidetracked into Chinese history when we're on an episode about Sudan, but yeah. it often comes up with Camarouge um, and Pol Pot. Oh, oh, China sponsored or armed Pol Pot who committed these massacres. It's like, China weren't there. They were on the ground. All they yeah. had to go on was the word of the person receiving the weapons. And in a country in Southeast Asia where it's not 
like modern day where everything's filmed on a smartphone, you can you can't get away with anything these days. Mm-hmm. If Paul Pot was to try and commit a secret genocide in today, it wouldn't say secret for very long because of smartphones, yeah. because of the internet. But during the Cultural Revolution, <laughs> at that point, mm. like you, 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 they didn't know. Yeah, the US also funny Pol Pot. So. <laughs> yeah, they were the last ones to do so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, coming back to Sudan, do you want to go into some of the militias and stuff and go into that? I think you had some stuff about the Janjaweed or I don't, I don't know. Um, well, I've sort of gone over what I've really got from the, the, the genuine and their sort of history. Um, the only okay. real thing that I've got sort of left to sort of go over would be the um, alleged Wagner connections that come out in the recent days. Sure. Yeah. Um, just before I do say that, because I saw the woman on CNN, someone might argue with me on this and disagree with me. But the woman on CNN, mm-hmm. when she said this, she said, the Wagner group. It's not Wagner. It's Wagner. It's the musician is Wagner. Because it's German. This is a Russian group, so it's Wagner. You can't use a German pronunciation for a Russian organization. <laughs> Even though they're named after them. <laughs> this is so Wagner. What are we going We're going for Wagner. 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 Wagner with a double yeah. Stick with that. <laughs> 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 heard it, it hit me ear wrong. It was like the Wagner group. <laughs> the Wagner group. Wagner. Gotcha. Wagner. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, the allegation has been, as I've alluded to, earlier on that the RSF do seem to be allied with the to some degree the national army of the Libyan national army which they're one of five groups claiming to be the current the legitimate government of Libya and um, but they actually control the most territory and um, one of the air bases that they control is the Al Jufra air base now, on the 16th of April, so a day after the fighting was seen, a mm. Russian-marked cargo plane was photographed on this airport. The next three days later, that plane was then photographed again, coming back from a Russian air base in Syria. Mm-hmm. And then that was then seen flying towards Sudan, where it's been alleged to have dropped off at the Chevlok garrison which is just north of our, basically on the border between Sudan and Libya. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually did get a photo that is allegedly from CNN. I do have to put this in quotation because they didn't put any notes. They presented this whilst they were talking about this garrison. So they obviously wanted us to believe that that's what they were photographing. Yes. And there's Chris's flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was interesting, the fact that they chose to use that flag, which is interesting. Yes, um, so back to the guys listening, sorry, yeah. Yeah, this on the back of the van here, uh, we believe this says flammable. I think I'm not sure. It's my Cyrillic, my reading of Cyrillic is not very good. Yeah, but yes, either way, there's definitely a flammable logo beneath the little flame. So either way, this is some sort of flammable agent or fuel or what have you mm-hmm. yeah um so yeah that that is the connection that the western media have made um mm-hmm. as far as we're aware that is the only connection so mm-hmm. everything else is speculation exciting speculation like that um mm-hmm. obviously we know that wagner are in libya we know that they have connections with mali 
Um, mm. But with the sort of state of the uh, Russian Federation sort of priorities at the moment, mm-hmm. it's easy to believe that they would use, that they are, as they are, they're using Wagner just as another unofficial division. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose the Russian state are maybe wrongly in in, in my mind, uh, but use that as a a buffer, saying, well, it's, it's not the Russian state doing it, it's Wagner. It's like, well, mm-hmm. Kind of, I suppose, but we all know that Wagner aren't particularly independent of the Russian government. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do see this as Wagner, for the sake of this, is Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so there, there was, so um, as I said before, Burhan and Hemeti both did go to uh, Russia and met with Putin. There's a picture somewhere of them. I'm trying to find it for us now. Um, but And it was the day before the invasion of Ukraine, so... So, so they haven't been back yeah. since. Um, and, you know, they obviously discussed all sorts of the economic stuff and this port thing about allowing the Russians to have, um, you know, naval vessels at the uh, port in Port Sudan and in Sudan. Um, but I've also, I need to find this up, I need to find this article, this reference. But you've also seen, uh, I think it was Hemeti saying um, that he has disassociated himself with Wagner because of, of, of the invasion and whatnot of the, the war in ukraine um so it might be a bit of an old sort of legacy thing the um the link with wagner um wagner sorry uh yeah i need to find the article the specific reference that i'm trying to reference that i'm speaking about here um yeah give me a moment i'll try and take it up while, 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 while we listen to some while we listen to chris think uh, speak on this but yeah i don't know if you have any other sort of things to mention while i, while I drag this up find this yeah so yeah, just sort of point out the sort of um, hypocrisy of it. So when when the Western media have been talking about, as they have, making a big state about Russia's involvement, or Wagner, Russia's involvement in Africa, um, mm-hmm. what they sort of say out the side of the mouth, slyly, is that their involvement generally comes at the expense of an established Western power who's already in there. So take it in Mali. The reason why the Western powers, particularly France, are making a stink about Wagner in Mali is because they've kicked the French out. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not just, oh, it's a, a one superpower getting involved in, in Africa. It's they're kicking us out t- to be there themselves. Because France, when the, say, take Britain, when the empire, the sun, sunset fell on the empire, we did lose a lot of our soft power in Africa. But the French mm-hmm. didn't really. They, despite going yes. decolonization, they didn't really leave. In fact, so many North African countries, still to this day, uh, I think Morocco until quite recently, their government was still using French as their official language for sort of bureaucracy, like the driver's licenses and things would still be in French. Yes. But of course, if you look at, contrast that to like Iraq, as soon as the British yeah. were gone... <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Nobody's speaking that again. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. I mean, actually, we should do a special on this, the, the role of the French in its essential sort of modern uh, continuation of, of colonizing Africa. Yeah. Um, or, or at least holding imperial power over, over Africa. I mean, the issue, so the currencies, the two currencies, the, what is the West African franc and the something else central african frank whatever it is but they're printed in france um there's there's actually a lot of references to 
stuff that's going on and the role that France plays. I mean, most yeah. famously, I think it's, you know, if you think about um, in Burkina Faso, um, old uh, Thomas Sankara, you know, the, the guy that assassinated him, of course, was one of his deputies. Uh, uh, oh, he's, I forgot his name, but the French were also apparently involved in that. That's in the 1980s. So the French have definitely not given up their colonial possessions as easy as the British. I think that's, yeah. that's fair well, to say. Gaddafi, the, 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 the popular sort of story goes that the, the actual person who killed Gaddafi in that yeah. famous footage where he was pulled out of the um, sewage pipe, that was meant mm -hmm. to have been a French agent. So the story goes. Right, 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 right. So I did find something, sorry, because I'll bring this up now um, for the link to Wagner. Sorry, I'll, I keep saying Wagner. I don't know why. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's actually from Reuters, uh, not this one. Uh, here we go. So Sudan's Hermeti seeks deeper Russia ties on Moscow visit. So uh, this is from Feb 23. Okay. Uh, the deputy head of Sudan's ruling council, General Mohamed Dagalo, so that's Hameti, headed to Moscow on Wednesday, saying he hoped to bolster ties with Russia and they just in a series of foreign visits. Um, da, 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 da. Yeah, it's an official visit coming to test ties with the country, Russia, for the new section, after ordering troops into eastern Ukraine. So, yeah, so they did visit. Um, uh, but I, I don't, I can't find the other link to the article, I, uh, the article I have, but I've got the quote, and it, it's either from the Financial Times or Reuters somewhere, but Basically, um, someone asked Hermeti about this Wagner link and the Russian link recently. So he said that um, although Wagner helped train the RSF through the Sudanese armed forces before 2019, he said he had cut dealings since the U.S. Treasury branded the group a criminal organization this year. So he cut links um, this year, 2023 then. Um, yeah. So apparently he's no longer there. I don't know. I'm no longer linked. So we'll see. I, I don't know. I think I think if there's more Wagner evidence to be found in Sudan, the Western media will go out of their way to find it and publish as much as they can. Yeah. And then that will become the partisan line that automatically exactly. will make the army the default good guys yeah, and the RSF the default bad guys. Correct. Correct. And they'll completely ignore the Egyptian link and the fact that Egypt is involved here and, and the fact that Egypt is also a military dictatorship. Which, yes, <laughs> which know, they the, keep forgetting. <laughs> what was it? Sorry, what did Tony Blair call him again? Sorry, the rescue of democracy. Yes, so the, well, the rescue <laughs> of democracy. Another, another great comment from the Tony Blair Institute for the Tony Blair Middle Eastern Institute for Peace <laughs> for regime change. <laughs> yes, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, do you have anything else for this, Chris? I'm, I'm, I'm. I think I've covered all the thing I've got. I mean, I can comment on any sort of other things you bring up. Um, but um, I think we've actually covered quite a lot there. I hope that anyone who's watched this sort of comes out of it with a bit more of a understanding. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we we trying to not be partisan. Um, mm. Like I said, because the, the, because we don't really know ourselves that this isn't clear cut. There aren't mm. any. There aren't any goodies. There aren't any baddies. There aren't any Nazis and fascists. There aren't any reds and blues. It's hard to, and it's hard to even speculate how it's going to go. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had to put my sort of, um, you know, my, my feelings as to where it's going to go, I mean, I, I feel like this is one of those crystal ball moments and then, you know, six months from now we're going to be like, oh, we said that and that was terrible, yeah. it was crap. Um, it does seem to be, well, actually, no, I, I, I am incorrect in this because I didn't know the number of troops that the regular army has compared to the RSF. I heard the RSF had 100,000, so I thought, okay, well, that's not small, but I think the main army will have more troops which, and they have the Air Force, which tells me then that they will win, you know, numerically they will win. 
Um, but since you've told me that it's 109,000 versus 100,000, um, that's very close. That's very tight. Yeah. Um, so that this then potentially, if you look at those numbers, this then could be a civil war. This could split into a, a bigger, longer protracted civil war. Um, I personally see that happening, unfortunately. I, I do think this will go down as the third Sydney's civil war. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a massive shame. Um, it's a massive shame. Uh, but let's hope we're wrong. Let's hope we're yeah. wrong. So, yeah, I think that's all then for tonight, Chris, for this one. Uh, so thank you for watching, if you haven't watching. And if you're listening or watching, please like, share, <laughs> please like, share, subscribe, notifications bell. And yes, this was uh, made off of one of your comments. So one of you commented and said, we would like a Sudan update. So if you want to make us do some other videos, whether that's about France and Africa or about anything else, please comment below and we will take that and make a video about it. So yeah, cool. Thank you very much, Chris. And see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.